Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection on Intentional Talk Radio Network. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha Ross. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Robert McClish, and we are going to have a wonderful conversation about relationships, navigating complexities, and building healthy communication in couples and families. So I know that's going to be very interesting and applicable to many people. So before we get started, I'm just going to to tell you a bit about Dr. McClish's background. Robert McClish II, Dr. Robert McClish II is also affectionately known as Pastor Rob. He is the senior pastor at Washington Tabernacle Ministry Baptist Church in St. Louis, Missouri. He has been in ministry since the age of 15. He has dedicated his ministerial life to building healthy relationships, enriching families, and empowering lives for over 25 years as a licensed minister and 14 years of pastoring. Dr. McClish is also the founder of Courageous Living Ministries, whose goal is to integrate theology and therapy to provide emotional and spiritual healing, tools for healthy relationships, and to promote family enrichment for courageous living. His goal is to also help men to identify and regulate their emotions as he provides therapy for participants at the Fathers and Family Support Center. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. McClish. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for being here. So we've discussed a broad topics in terms of mental health, you know, existing on a continuum. And we've talked a lot about seeking treatment, but that's more so been in the context of individual and family therapy, but not going so much into couples. So today you'll be able to, you know, we focus a little bit more on family therapy, couples therapy, as well as you'll talk specifically about the work you do with men. So why don't we start the conversation today with just discussing relationships in general, defining different types. Can you define some different types of relationships for us? Sure. Um, There are quite a few different types of relationships. I mean, we have working relationships. We got um, relationships where they're platonic, where it's... um, you know, it's it's intimate, but it doesn't involve sex. And you have sexual relationships. You have um, marriage relationships. You got all kinds of relationships across the board. We're going to have a lot to talk about them. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and you I'm know, not even going into the whole colloquium of friends with benefits and situations. You, you, you read my thought because in this day and age, we hear this all the time and there's generational gaps, right? So some people are going to hear that and be like, I don't know what that is. I even said that to my mother the other day, that that's not a concept that I grew up with so much. Like when I think of friend, I think platonic. I don't think about something else. And that's just for me personally, but I know other people may think differently. So yes, we will get into that. So we've talked about stigma regarding seeking mental health services. And um, as I said, more in the context of individual therapy, could you discuss stigma specific to seeking family therapy or couples therapy? Well, one, the stigma of of going going to therapy is huge. You know, a lot of people are like, I don't need to go see a shrink. I don't Mm-hmm. I'm not crazy. Yeah, I'm not with me. crazy and all of those kind of things. But <clears throat> in the constructs of of both 
couples or relationships or family um, therapy, a lot of people would say, um, you know, my parents didn't need it. So then why do I? They've been together for 50 some years. And so Mm -hmm. they didn't need therapy and they just fine. But, you know, and then other ones is that, you know, we don't need anybody else in our business. Mm -hmm. Um, We we, let's keep let's keep our drama, our drama. Um, Or others will say I have a pastor. And so I don't I don't really need Mm -hmm. um somebody to come in that that's doing all this stuff and these, this therapy stuff Mm -hmm. on me because I got a pastor that's, that's doing this. And others say, I can't afford it. Others say, um, our marriage isn't in trouble, so we don't need it. Um, others will say, you know, my family might be a little crazy, but my relationship ain't crazy. I'm not like them. So a lot of people don't really see the benefits Mm -hmm. of, getting the therapy beforehand because a lot of times when it is when it comes time for therapy and they yeah. come and see me it's usually, usually or the bottom is falling out or about to fall out and and it's exactly. so unfortunate because yeah. it's true that we don't have to wait till something has totally gone wrong there is prevention and then there's intervention right. so you know, for our listeners, it's important to recognize that therapy doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. You're inadequate. There's a deficit. It means that you recognize that you want to have the best quality of life. And if there's things that you can do to help enhance that, that's where therapy comes in. Right, right. Because a lot of people, a lot of times from our parents, we might learn how to use a hammer, but we don't know how to use a screwdriver. You know, you learn different tools when you go to therapy individually, but also especially when it comes to relationally. I mean, you got two people that came from two different backgrounds mm-hmm. that have their own systems that they grew up in. And then you're bringing all of that to one place to become one. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's, it's important because you learn different communication skills. Yes. You learn how to have conflict resolution. You learn mm-hmm. how to grow as a couple and individually. It's so much, so many more benefits that come with um, going, to, going to therapy as a couple. Yes. As you said, it's not just marrying a person, right? It's, it's marrying a family. It's marrying into a culture and recognizing how <clears throat> are you going to find ways to mediate those um, differences. So relationships, there's challenges, you know, regardless of of your background, but specifically within the Black or the African-American community, talk with us about why it's important for Black families to work on overcoming this stigma. Well, one, because there are so many secrets that have become the culture of the African-American family. And so when it comes to those secrets that, that are a part of African-American culture, they can be brought into the relationship. And then there's this dark space that needs to be dealt with. Also, there's systems that need to be dealt with as well. So from, from my experience, it's really looking at the system that we grew up in that may not have been the best system or even defining what your system is and what mm-hmm. your system would look like in your family. How can you differentiate from the family that you grew up in? You know, for me, I came from a hood background, you know, 
And so now I'm out here living in the suburbs. So then <laughs> there's a whole nother system yeah, it's a that comes with that. And and so dealing with those things, we we need to work through those things, especially in, in the African-American community, because if we're going to break generational curses, like we say in church, if we're going to mm-hmm. break the cycle of, of death. You got to do the work. Yeah, exactly. You have to do the work. And and what you talk about there, there's intergenerational trauma, as you mentioned. So growing up in one community and moving to another or being in one socioeconomic class and moving to another. So we see how that can impact relationships, which may lead to marriage or parenting and co-parenting. So then it's also going to impact parenting, right? Because right. of the background. Exactly. So, so all the more reason to start early, even before you know, making the, the, getting on a next serious relationship level, there can be therapy or before marriage, there can be premarital counseling. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because when you bring the kids into the equation, sometimes that brings out and that enhances what either needs to be worked on or where you need to grow. Which many people don't understand that triad of like marriage or any like long-term committed cohabitating relationship, like three main areas, sex, money, and how to raise the kids. Mm -hmm. Those are like the major areas that need to be addressed. And many people don't discuss these issues. Right, right. So therapy becomes a place that it's safe. There's a guideline, there's a structure and there are boundaries that, that come along, come along exactly. with that. Exactly. So we often hear counselors say that they might practice couples or marriage therapy, but may not be specifically trained for it. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the training as a DMFT, a doctor of marriage and family therapy, so that people can have an understanding. Listeners can know the difference between someone who does individual and group therapies versus someone who does family and couples therapy. What should they be looking for? Okay. Um, Well, for me, I really learned a lot dealing with systems Um, from the uh, the, the school that I went to at, at Eastern University, it was more about um, understanding the systems that we grew up in, defining the system that we grew up in, and then discovering how we can differentiate or change from the system that we grew up in. So um, so then coupled that with, um, what is that? Um, I just had a brain fog. <laughs> Um, couple that with attachment theory, mm-hmm. which is where the attachments that we grew up in um, dictates the relationships that we that we gravitate towards. And so whenever you're looking for someone who specializes in couples or family therapy, mm-hmm. um, look at where their, their, their training was in that they that they learn about uh, Balby's out. Um, attachment theory they learn about systems theory um when they that they learn about um different attachment styles because that mm-hmm. is a huge part when it comes yeah. to having healthy relationships right so a person that may have been abandoned mm-hmm. early in life 
by biological parents or or caregivers. Um, And it's not to say that if that happens, that people can't have a secure attachment. But a lot of the work I've done was like foster care population. If they don't land in the right timing and phase of development in a loving, like pre-adoptive or adoptive home, it could be a challenge for them to connect with people. Because as you said, that attachment, if that secure attachment isn't there from early on, it becomes difficult now to connect with people. And sometimes a spouse, a partner may think it's something about them, Mm -hmm. but it's like an internal issue that's going on with that person. That's right. Once again, and that's the reason why therapy is really good for us, because we don't realize a lot of I didn't realize how much I had an avoidant attachment style. But then also seeing so many couples that um, have those different insecure attachment styles. And then they're like they they change the partner. But then it's mm-hmm. the same issue. <laughs> Because those exactly. those issues that they're fighting are really on the inside of them. And then it's just a different face. Right. So you heard it here, listeners, because sometimes, you know, it doesn't mean that there is an impact by the other person. But if something happens once, we recognize it's an isolated incident. But if we continue to have similar experiences, then we know it's a pattern. And when we have a pattern of behavior, it's tied to a pattern of thinking. So it's going to have to be changing the thinking and the belief so that we could see an overall behavior change. Yeah, absolutely. So for listeners who may be thinking of seeking couples or marriage counseling now, anything else specifically you would advise for them in terms of shopping for a couples or marriage counselor? Yeah, just to really look at what is their specialization. Like if there was trauma that was experienced, see if they, if the therapist specializes in trauma or Mm -hmm. um if there's others that that deal with men's issues that's one of the Mm -hmm. things that i deal with do they deal with specifically men's issues and when it comes to emotional regulation or if they uh do emotionally focused therapy looking at the different forms of therapy because sometimes that can speak to the things that you need within the relationship so um looking at what are their their specialties in in their forms of therapy what type of um schools of thought do they do they subscribe to um so those are some of the other things to look for so excellent advice there specialization as you said trauma and unfortunately trauma is more common than we realize when we think about sexual trauma during childhood it's about eight in ten girls Um, Eight out of 10 girls is about six out of 10 boys, but we feel like boys are underrepresented just because of social stigma and abuse with um, males. So it may be underreported. So that means that there are many people who may have experienced trauma and that may impact their, uh, you know, just how they interact in terms of relationships. Or if it wasn't childhood trauma, it might be sexual assault. It might be physical assault, or maybe they grew up in a home where they witnessed intimate partner violence, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So realizing how that also too can have, can have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. That, and then also, you know, with the acute trauma, you know, if they, if they're dealing with a death, you know, and they've never gotten over that death, like some one guy that I work with, he uh, hit both of his parents died when he was eight years old. And so that played a huge part in 
his relationships because he was wondering if uh, he wasn't able to have secure attachments because mm-hmm. he didn't have that secure attachment from his parents. So it can be so many different forms of 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 um, of trauma that just go that goes along with or beyond the complex trauma that others experience. Yes. And so what you said there is that people don't realize that they're re-experiencing these patterns or these critical, you know, conflictual relationship issues from early life. And that's what's happening within relationships. So therapy becomes a place that, you know, the therapist, the counselor is trained to help you identify that, understand it, because these are defense mechanisms. We only have behaviors because we've learned that we need to adapt to something. And sometimes we adapt in a healthy sense. And unfortunately, sometimes we adapt in an unhealthy sense because it may be all that we know or we've been exposed to. So it becomes an opportunity to learn healthier ways of, of coping. Absolutely. Also, also infidelity. That's a big, a big area in terms of marriage and couples therapy. Can you talk with us a little bit? I'm sure listeners, you know, that will be an area that, that folks are thinking about. Yeah. It is something that is a lot easier these days, um, especially when you have social media and you have all of these different things that um, that people are dealing with internally that nobody knows about. Um, and so that can come out in the relationship where that causes infidelity. And so that can be another form of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. That actually is another form of trauma. Yes. And so... Um, when it comes to dealing with, you know, the uh, the betrayed and the betrayer, it's very important for both of them to have their own individual stuff that they work through, and then also the couple stuff because mm-hmm. there's that that's where that bridge is built. But both people have to be able to deal with mm-hmm. and heal with the things that they're going through because somebody who does betray normally has holes inside of his or her heart that they're trying to find in other places. But then you also have the one who's been betrayed, who's dealing with their own PTSD. And so there is looking at and dealing and healing with from those, those, those triggers that can um, be detrimental to both the relationship and both the people individually. So you said easier. So easier meaning that more vulnerabilities today in terms of what people are exposed to in terms of opportunity for infidelity, because people hear that and I think they automatically think sex, but there's different types of infidelity, like there's emotional infidelity. So there might not be any physical or sexual relationship, but it's sharing, right? Right. With someone else that is not the partner or spouse or financial infidelity where people are keeping whole sets of information away from their partner. Can you speak to that a bit just in terms of, you know, infidelity, like how you just defined relationships early on? How would you define infidelity? Infidelity can be in it. it, What infidelity is, is it's some type of break in the connection between the couples. Mm -hmm. 
And those breaks can be emotional where there is an emotional attachment to someone else. Um, I would also classify um, different addictions like like porn addiction and mm-hmm. sexual addictions and all of those types of things. Um, and then, of course, you know, with me being a pastor, I got to look at it from a scriptural standpoint. You know, mm-hmm. the Bible tells us that if we if we lust with our eyes, we've already committed adultery. So it's really a heart issue um, more than it is necessarily the act of doing things um, that goes outside the constructs of the marriage or the relationship. And once again, most times it's because there are holes, there are dark spaces that need to Mm -hmm. be dealt with um, in order to help that person not to um, commit this, this horrible horrible, um, painful event against the ones that we say that we love. You made an excellent point there just in terms of not just deed, but thinking. So, you know, intention, motive, um, not only action, but but looking at all of those levels. And you also talked about for you, you know, you do secular counseling, but then you also have a pastoral role, which is a perfect segue into my next question, which is, you know, religion and spirituality has long been a coping mechanism for many, many Black people and other communities um, as well. But I know you have a focus on, you know, African-American population. So speak to us ab- about the difference between pastoral counseling and secular counseling. Okay. So with pastoral counseling, most times those that are uh, providing pastoral care, um, they usually come from a theological background where they get either masters in divinity or theology, or they also can have a doctorate in uh, divinity or you know, another advanced degree when it comes to um, uh, pastoral care. Um, Also, some of them may have a bachelor's in theology. Others may not have that specific training. Um, But most times they're going to come from a biblical standpoint and others who are not necessarily trained in helping couples when it comes to uh, dealing with some deep-rooted stick, deep-rooted things, um, they can bring their opinions to the table. Whereas with a therapist, it's not necessarily bringing their opinions to the table. It's more so um, untangling the knots that are within either the person or the couple or the relationship or all of the above Mm. through different therapeutic techniques. Um, through and and so like for me, like I said, I use mostly um, EFT, which is emotionally focused therapy, which is to help the couple to deal with their emotions, be vulnerable with one another, and then help mm-hmm. them to be at a more intimate space. But um, but I I actually integrate both uh, theology and therapy, where where I'm bringing both the biblical understanding of things. And I'm not just saying the Bible says this, the Bible says that, but it's, or I'm what trying to say, <laughs> I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> what I'm doing is I'm using the, uh, the biblical principles mm-hmm. to make sure that there is health, there's spiritual health in the relationship, but then also bringing in the therapeutic techniques to make sure 
that 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 we're working through the things that that we haven't worked through, and then to have a healthy healthy emotional connection between the couples or even with the family. And what you just thank you for describing that. We've had a lot of other talks in terms of faith and mental health and bridging, rather than being separate, because oftentimes. You may hear that like in the church or with believers that they don't want to seek mental health, um, you know, because they're not, it means they're not a believer or their relationship with God isn't, you know, strong enough, but recognizing that it's an end, meaning that you can pray and you know, go to therapy, you can meditate and, you know, go to therapy that it doesn't have to be separate. And for many faith leaders, it's also important to recognize when something beyond pastoral may be needed. So we've talked about that a great deal in length in previous shows as well, because we see that, that sometimes there's suffering and silence, even in the church, because people don't want to speak up about intimate partner violence. They don't want to speak out about trauma that has happened in their life, whether it's within their families of origin when they were coming up or in their young adult life. So then we see that now there's a lot of this anger maybe or sadness that is there. And even though people are praying all of the time, it still seems something is missing. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like having that connection of, you know, that can be faith-based, but there also can be at times like that secular piece as well. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that, that came to mind was, you know, say you break your arm, you're not just going to pray and ask God to heal your arm. You're going to go yeah. to the emergency room. They're going to bandage it up. They're going yeah. to um, have you to come back and do a checkup to make sure that it's healing correctly. Where even if you have something traumatic happen, God forbid that you you have a leg that's dangling and you're going to go to the trauma unit. Yeah. They're going to do all of the work to make sure that you can save that leg or give you something different. But it's and it's the same way with our emotions, though. Our are the the areas that that um, that we need healing. You mm-hmm. you can't put a bandage on your emotions. You cannot put yeah. any neosporin on it and then expect. <laughs> it to heal. There are things that has to be worked out, and yeah. you have trained individuals to help deal with those emotional injuries. And so that's where the therapist comes into play is to. Um, especially those that you might, you might have a Christian therapist, you know, they'll be there, they'll pray with you, but then also give you the tools mm-hmm. to deal and heal because you, and so one of the things to I say is that one, Jesus is known as a counselor. He's known as wonderful counselor. He has the Holy spirit. That is a guide, which is another counselor. And so he gives us the people who have learned these tools in order to help people to heal in an internal way, in an emotional way, and spiritual way. I love that. You you know, that that sums it up well, that there are going to be different levels of what you do. Yeah, if you break your arm, you're not going to stay there and pray alone. You may pray, get into the hospital on time and fix this, this arm, but you are going to have another person, a doctor that comes into that space. But I think, again, how we're socialized, the stigma is that there's less stigma with seeing like a medical doctor. 
There's more of a comfort level with that, whereas seeing someone in the mental health field, there's that challenge of how are people going to to perceive me? So I'm glad that you use that example so people can get an idea. And while your background is, is Christianity, for people who may have a different religious background, it may be leaning to whatever their spiritual relief um, religion might be is a rabbi, is a iman, is a priest, whoever it may be. If spirituality becomes a, a, a part of it as as well. Right. Right. So, what are some? We've talked a lot about what counseling is, why we need it. So, I'm sure people want to hear some strategy based stuff. So, what are some key strategies for couples strengthening their relationship and communication? What do you think are some key factors? Um, some key factors, one, is to be brutally honest with ourselves. Um, sometimes we continue in the, um, in the representative role until mm. we can't any longer. And then that's when the real person comes out we got we got to be brutally honest with ourselves what do we need to deal with what do we need to heal yeah bring and and be honest about the baggage that we come with Mm. okay you know folks don't do that you were right with representative please hold for my representative and it's the all shiny well made up you know nothing there perfect you're right, but that's not people, right? Because we're we're human, we're fallible. Right. We all have experienced some level of adversity, some more than others, but that's a part of our character. It makes us who we are. Right, right, right. And then and that brings me to my next one, which is being open and vulnerable. Okay. You can never have true intimacy unless you are open and vulnerable. And that starts with being open and truthful and vulnerable with yourself. Um, the other thing would be to, uh, to have date nights, um, have moments where you are fueling the relationship. I have a, I have a plant that, uh, I I got it at my grandmother's funeral and, um, I named it Pearl after her and I had it in this, in this dark room. It was in the room with, uh, all these boxes that I need to unpack and, and it started <laughs> dwindling and it got down to like three twigs. It was, it's a piece lily. And, uh-huh. um, and it, I, I got to a point where I was real sad. I was, because it was so much that was going on in my life. And so I went downstairs and I saw this, this, this plant with these three little twigs. And I'm like, you will not die. I'm speaking to it, throwing ice cubes at it and stuff because it needed some water. So I'm throwing ice cubes at it. And so my mm-hmm. wife, she said, uh, she's like, you know, you need to take that thing out of the dark room and put it into the family room and let it have some intensive care. Mm-hmm. And I see you. So what I did is I took it out of the dark room, put it right by the light. And then I started feeding it on a continual basis. I even mm-hmm. talked to Pearl. And now Pearl is flourishing. She has nice. all of these different leaves. You would never be able to tell that it had those three little twigs. And the reason for that was because I spent time with it. I poured into it. I mm-hmm. put it in an environment where it could grow. 
And so it's the same way with date night. Date night allows for us to have have mm-hmm. a cultivation process where yes. we can learn more about each other. We're intentionally feeding our mm-hmm. relationship in order for it to grow and for both people to grow. Because that's that's the ultimate goal of relationships in the first place, is that both people can grow and yes. go with one another. And sometimes people grow at, at different paces, which is okay too, but it's being able to converse about that. So let me do a recap on what you said. One, be honest about your baggage. Don't just send a representative, even if the representative pops in and says, hi, how you doing? You still got to share over time, you know, the true aspects of self, because you're right. People may be involved for long periods of time or shorter periods and not share. And then when there's a next level of commitment, there's information that comes out that they never knew, which could change, change things. Right. So being honest, then you said being open and vulnerable and the two go together. But if you're not honest with yourself first, you can't be honest with anyone else. And as you said, date nights, taking time to um, actually fuel the relationship, nourish and make sure you're fostering it. And and sometimes you see this definitely with people who have long, long relationships, whether it be in the context of marriage, cohabiting, whatever it may be. Sometimes that complacency might build because you have someone and it might be taking them for granted. So I hear that a great deal of time, you know, with with patients talking about, well, I feel like, you know, they don't he doesn't appreciate me. She doesn't appreciate me. And as you said earlier, those holes inside that people want to fill. They start to fill it other ways. So rather than leaning outward or to other places to being able to lean towards each other. Absolutely. 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 And I, I would also say learning each other's love language. Um, you know, that's yeah. a, that's a huge thing because different love languages is what fuels the relationship in different ways. Like for instance, if my if my for my if my wife was a was one that needed quality time and I'm constantly working doing acts of service and she doesn't care about that, that's not fueling her at all. Yeah. She's always asking me, why are you doing all this work and you're not spending any time with me? It's because I didn't learn her love, her love language. And I'm and like, I'm doing all this work. You should, you should appreciate what I'm doing. I'm doing all, can't you see all this work that I'm doing? She's like, I just want some time. Mm-hmm. Now for those, I'm familiar with love languages. For those listeners that may not be, could you talk a little bit more about that and where they can get information about that? Sure. sure. Uh, Gary Chapman, um, he he defined the love languages as different ways that we are fueled or we get more um more in our emotional bank account in our relationships and so he he points out that we we um we pour into people in their love language mm-hmm. and so for instance um one person may speak be speaking Greek and the other person may be speaking Spanish. But once you learn their language, yeah. then, you, then you can be able to help them out to uh, to have healthy relationships. And so he talks about uh, these different love languages. One is acts of service. Mm-hmm. The other one is quality time. The other is uh, physical touch. The other is words of affirmation. And then the other one is... Um uh, and uh, I always get that fifth one. Um, quality time, acts of service, 
physical touch, words of affirmation. And did I say quality time? Yes. Okay. So, so then, ah, what is that fifth one? I always miss that fifth one. I'm sure it's going to come to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that That's how it goes, right? It's, yeah. it's the tip of the tongue phenomenon. Mess me up for a while, too. I don't remember that. But it can, um, but these are different ways that we pour into one another. Did we say gifts? Did you say gifts? That Maybe is it's the gifts. fifth one. It's gifts. That is the fifth one. Gifts. And it's important that you yes. know that, as you said, and I'm glad you did, because there's some people say, well, I don't want you to buy my affection. <laughs> and I understand where a person may be coming from for, with that. But if truly that's a love language and then love language is, is also deeper than what we think, because it's our early life. It's, it's that biopsychosocial model, everything coming together to bring us to that space. So is it that a person grew up like neglected mm-hmm. or like not having enough? So having things are important to them for that reason. So because it's important to them, they now want to give it to others. So it may not just be wanting to buy, but it's, as you said, this is the way truly that they show that they, they care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that gives another opportunity to get into intimacy, learn more about each other, where they come from. Why do you like gifts? What, what happened in your childhood? Did you, were you like me who grew up in the hood? You didn't have anything. You had to stand in the, in the government aisle and, and get your cheese and rice and, 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 uh, pe- pe- uh, peanut butter in a can. Did you have to do that? Did you have hand-me-downs? What, tell me more yeah. about it. And so mm-hmm. it helps us to unpack the layers within the person so that we can be able to be intimate with one another without the shame. I'm glad that you spoke about that. So that's something that listeners can definitely, I mean, you could get the book, they can read up on it. If they decide to do some counseling, then they're going to be like, okay, I'm up on that already. Cause I heard it on new horizon, the mind and body connection with Dr. McClish. Yeah. So it's so important to just realize all of those varying aspects of ourselves, And even though they're different love languages and one may represent us more so, it doesn't mean that there aren't other areas that are also utilized. But it may be that a person has one that is like the majority of, of how they, they communicate. Exactly. exactly. And when I do couples therapy, I usually do the uh, five love language assessment. So that I can know what, so I can know what their love language is. Mm-hmm. And even if they've done it, sometimes it changes over a course of time. Um, yeah. because some of those needs are met. And so it's not something that's really prevalent for them. And you made a good point there too, that, you know, think about people who are married like 50 something years, my parents shout out to them, you know, 52 years, knowing each other, like 57 and we change, you know, understandably, because it's just different phases of life. So if you met someone in your teens and you married in your 20s and you're now in your 40s, 50s, 60s, it's just a different phase of life for you. So you learn more, you grow and you mature. So sometimes it's figuring out how do you do that together? And sometimes in couples, a partner or a spouse may feel like that partner or spouse is leaving them. Yeah. or moving beyond because they are doing something new and different. Can you speak to, to that a little bit? 
Yeah, it, it sometimes, you know, a lot, well, a lot of times I have this theory and it's not proven, okay, that uh, <laughs> that every seven to 10 years, there is a transition that we make where we're either redefining ourselves or something is being redefined in us. And so I believe that that God allows for us to do that, to um, to constantly be on the move of adaptation and then not getting bored. And so sometimes you see that in relationships where somebody says, oh, I'm getting bored in the relationship. So then that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to move on from the relationship. It just means that you need to find where you're transitioning and then see how the the relationship can turn and mm-hmm. where the relationship can evolve because we're always growing. We're always growing. Mm-hmm. I don't have the same beer here that I had 10 years ago. won't have the same beer here in the next 10 years because we're always growing we're always evolving we're always changing Mm -hmm. and anything that is not growing that's when something dies so then really what that means is that there needs to be a place or a space where there needs to be more growth Mm -hmm. or different areas where um where we may need to let go of some things and bring in some new things Mm -hmm. in order to continue with that process That's an excellent point. As you said, we are always growing, but for some reason, it seems like not all, but many view relationships more static though. They don't necessarily see it as fluid in that, like you're supposed to be the same way as 25 years ago when I met you. So just as you talked about the plant and nourishing it, we we still grow at different paces. So even though we are growing, it's just being able to reflect and recognize what a partner or a spouse is going through and, and try to help each other through as much as, as possible. Yeah, right. And then that's where the midlife crisis come in. All these um. <laughs> that come in is and really what a crisis is, is at a fork of the road, trying yeah. to, trying to transition. I mean, adolescence, that is a crisis. Terrible twos is a crisis. Yes, but normal. And I tell parents that I do a lot of for, um, you know, family work and I say, this is normal. And I even rename it sometimes terrific twos because it's not, it's terrible for you as a parent because you interpret it that way, but it's terrific for the child because for the toddler, because they need to learn. That's right. They're, you know, they're learning boundaries. They're exploring. They're like, Oh, I have a will. There's like something within me that wants to go here and and do that. So if we don't allow them that, then they'll be stunted in their growth. Right. Right. But we want them to do what we want them to to, to do. Exactly. Exactly. We got to keep in mind that they've been in a womb for nine months. That's been comfortable for them. Yeah. Now they Then they explore and then discover this whole world that's outside of the womb. And then they get to two. They're like, whoa, I can run. Let me take off my diapers and run around. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's always transition. It's always for real when it says time is filled with swift transition. It we are always transitioning, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay to transition. Okay, 
So that's affirmation, listeners. You're here and there. It's okay to transition. It's okay to not be the same as you were in the beginning of of the relationship, but it's, it's communicating. So I think that's a perfect segue as you gave the example of children that we've talked a lot about the couples um, counseling and now shifting a little bit with couples in terms of like parenting and caregiving. What would you say are some strategies for improving and strengthening communication with each other in reference to child rearing? Because I see that all the time in the work that I did, like oppositional defiance with kids because they're going to the person, the parent that's laissez faire, you know, in their parenting versus the one who has more, you know, boundaries. And then we're seeing defiance happening because the parents aren't on the same page. Right, right. And uh, what that's called in the the systems theory world is triangulation. Yep. Um, and so, you know, triangulation is when you, like you said, you go to one parent and then it ends up putting parents against parents mm-hmm. because they're saying one thing to another and then there's an allegiance with the other and then it, it it's really broken. It causes more broken relationships, um, and I and and personally, I saw that with my my grandmother and my grandfather. You know, my grandmother would would give me uh, five dollars, then my grandfather would give me ten dollars, and they wouldn't they wouldn't know that each one did it. But I'm coming up because of it. <laughs> so so that happens a lot of times. But one thing that is major when it comes to um, the communication in the relationship as parents. Uh, one major thing is being a united front. If there is a child that is trying to triangulate, if you're a united front, you always ask, did you talk to your mother about that? Or did you talk to your father about that? And then before making any decisions, make sure that um, that you both discussed what's going to happen rather than trying to be the good parent or the bad cop, you know, it's, and, and then also defining your roles in the parenthood, who would, who would be the one that'd be the more disciplinary, who would be the one that would <clears throat> be the more, the one that's easier to talk to <clears throat> just because one is more, of the disciplinarian doesn't mean that it has to be bad cop. It just means that you're making sure that there are boundaries that are set so that it's, it's, it's a, uh, a structured environment. It's not about having the cool parent. Sometimes you're the one that's easier to talk to. That's fine. But knowing your roles and embracing those roles are very important. Um, another thing that I would, um, recommend too is turning off the TV, getting off of Facebook, putting down the phone, and having dinner together. One of the things that we have lost as a society is we've lost the art of having dinner together at the table. Or even some, we may not have a table. Sometimes we might sit on the couch together, but whatever it is, we're eating together and we're spending time with one another where we can have open communication with each other. 
And that's what brings about closeness throughout the whole family and the constructs of the family. And, you know, uh, research has shown that whenever you have more connectedness, you, it reduces the risk of depression or teen pregnancy or mm-hmm. eating disorders or substance use or violence and all of those different things, because there is a strong family unit. And one of the things that we have to do, we have to eat. We have to eat. <laughs> so then why not yes. eat together? So as you mentioned, triangulation. Mm -hmm. So parents listening, keep that in mind. And we know that it's modern day. So parenting looks different. Sometimes it's grandparents, sometimes it's aunts aunts and uncles. We have different makeup in terms of um, family, but however you may be co-parenting, just recognizing that you are on the same page. So that way you have the united front and you're more likely to raise. So again, getting a mixed message, it becomes difficult right. knowing for the child to know which way they're trying to go in terms of, of the discipline. So staying on the same same page. Do you have resources that you would recommend for our listeners, specifically for couples and or parenting? Um, one thing that I, I usually spend a lot of time looking at and listening to would be focused on the family. Um, there's a lot of different podcasts and, and things that 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 focus on uh, relationships and um, and parenting and all of those different things, uh, even the challenging things that happen in relationships. Um, also, uh, there's a book that's called the Couples Activity Workbook with 70 interactive games to strengthen relationships. Um, this is, these are some things that couples can do to find different things that will keep the, keep the marriage high or keep the marriage fun. Um, mm-hmm. fun and laughter is, is huge in relationships because it sends the dopamines and then it gets the, the feel, the pleasure, um, chemical that goes throughout the body, but then also it brings about connection. Um, also eight dates by Dr. John and Julie Gottman. Um, these are different conversations that you can have, uh, Mm -hmm. when you go on your date nights and then also intentional parenting. That's another good book. That's really good. Um, 10 ways to, to be an exceptional parent in the quick fix world by Doug and Kathy Fields. Excellent. I'm glad people have this on recorded so they can listen to it it again to get all of all of that. So um, that's important. And just keeping in mind that, as you said, you know, communication is, is key. And in, in this day and time, you know, families, we're just seeing, we have more blended families. We have step families. We have all different kinds of makeup um, for families. So being um, aware of that and how that may also um, be addressed as as well. You know, I in foster care, I had a lot of children who were being raised by grandparents and not that grandparents can't do it, but generationally it is different. I mean, they've raised all of their children. They're in a later stage of life. So the way the energy level they may have, or just generationally, how they think about how parenting may be different. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So now I'd like us to, in the 
little bit of time we have left is to have you talk a little bit about the work you do specifically with fathers. You know, within the field of parenting, many models may be sometimes oversaturated with models that focus on the perspective of the mother. And you focus on specific cultural care, um, expanding practice, particularly for Black men. Can you talk with us a little bit about the work that you do? Awesome. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, specifically, I provide therapy for the uh, the men of an organization called the Fathers and Family Support Center. And there at the Fathers and Family Support Center, they have um, classes where these men go through these six-week courses um, where they're learning parenting techniques and they're learning how to cook they got somebody and they also get a social worker and they also get a case manager to help them deal with some things if they if they have homeless issues they have a um, employment specialist to help them to find jobs they get legal help and then there's me who um, provides therapy for them my goal and my role is to one help them to deal with the unresolved trauma that they've experienced, but then also to transcend the trauma that they've gone through um, by getting in touch with what I call their little selves, um, getting in touch with that inner child with them that what that may have been neglected or that inner child that may have um, had some type of anxiety issues or that inner child that may have constantly been fearful about people leaving them, especially when it comes from the, um, the idea of having a home where the father wasn't in. Most of the guys who come through this program are guys who haven't had a father in the home. So they don't know how to father because they didn't mm. see. The and so um, we deal with those, those, traumatic issues of abandonment we deal with those areas where Mm -hmm. uh, um they have attachment issues they they go from (laughs) we don't call them babies mom we call them the mother of the children Mm -hmm. they go from one mother of their child to another mother of their child and then sometimes they have like five different ones we deal with why are you going to all of these different Mm -hmm. women to look for love and so we deal with all of that stuff. And one of the things too, is I help them to look at the king in them because I tell them that if you recognize that you're a king, you don't do things that peasants do because you have a higher view of yourself. Not from an arrogant standpoint, not from a prideful standpoint, but from a standpoint of knowing your self-worth that you don't have to share yourself with everybody else. Sounds like some heavy work that you are doing there. And I mean, as you talk about, you know, the four or five different, you know, mothers of your children, I mean, we also have to think about the historical trauma impact that, you know, as a people, you know, Black people in enslavement, there was breeding, there was studying, you know, the men were used to, to create children, women were incubators where children were taken away. So unfortunately, that's something that happened over generations. And sometimes these may be the remnants and the residuals of that we've talked about in the past, Dr. Joy DeGrasse, um, post-traumatic slave syndrome, and just thinking about how those impacts of slavery. 
So it may not be on a conscious level thinking of like, this is where it came from. But as we've talked about, being exposed to something over time impacts thinking and, and it impacts behavior. That's right. That's right. And that's a part of that cultural trauma piece. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, and that's another part that we usually don't look at. You know, we look at the, the complex trauma. We look at the acute mm-hmm. trauma. We look at the, um, the uh, different forms of trauma, but cultural trauma plays a huge part. And so that's where the, sits, the systems breaking the systems, breaking the cycles come into play. And so once you define that system, like for instance, one of the one of the fathers, his dad may have had three different women who he was who he had children with. So it's a part of the culture, but it's mm-hmm. time it's it help it's helpful to be able to define that and see that and yes. then be like, okay, now I'm gonna break that. I'm gonna be the one to break that cycle yes. and break that barrier. Right. So the the fragmentation. Right. You know, and so you see that. And then we also and not to say that it can't happen in in any economic level, but we do see that when socioeconomics are lower, like when there is poverty, there's less opportunity. You know, there's less, you know, intrinsic motivation at times. So many studies have shown that with with young girls that don't have like hopes for the future, like having a baby having a child become something that they can do, something that they can aspire to and they can be good at. And also, you know, not just in that sense, but then also love, as you talked about it, wanting someone to love them, but not recognizing that, yes, love will be there. But this unconditional peace that, you know, that you feel when they're infants, that kind of joy is wonderful, but there's also a lot of responsibility that, that comes along with it. So when there are opportunities to be invested and to grow, it definitely helps to make a difference in terms of, you know, the long-term trajectory for, for young people. Right, right, right. And then I usually talk to them about uh, who I call the track star. The track star is the one that runs from things and runs. He's the one that'll say, I'm going to go get some milk and won't come back. <laughs> or, oh, he said the track star. I, now that's a new, I heard that I'm going to buy a loaf of bread or a pack of cigarettes, but that, that is a new one for me. Yeah. yeah. And then they end up running from relationship to relationship, but then they find themselves being in toxic environments because they're runners. Right. And we can't run away from ourselves. That's a big part of psychotherapy that is helpful, that wherever we go, recognizing that we take us with us. And no matter what happens, we have to recognize our internal experience. I've I've had that in therapy. People tell me, Dr. Ross, anywhere I go, I'm going to meet like the jerk or whatever you want to call him. Yeah. And why is that? And sometimes we have to unpack that and say, I don't know, why is that? Let's let's talk about that. Because if it happened at this time and this time and that time, that's a lot going on that in your world that this is happening, you know, so many times. That becomes a pattern of behavior. So we have to think about what's going on. Right. 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 So we are just about 
out of time. Before we wrap up, any last words of wisdom or pearls that you'd like to share in terms of relationships? We'll definitely have to have you um, back because we can never fully address everything in an hour, but this is definitely um, a good start. Right, right. Well, thank you. I'm I'm so glad to be on here and I'm just thankful that uh, we're able to have this conversation and um, talk about relationships. And one of the things that I usually say um, also is that in relationships, we can either be the thermostat or the thermometer. Um, We can either um, be like the thermometer and just say that we're upset, say that we're angry, say that we need help, or we can be like the thermostat and then regulate our emotions, find ways to help regulate our emotions and regulate the environment that we're in. And so that's what therapy is there for, is to help you to learn those tools to regulate. And so um, please, please get rid of the stigma that you don't need therapy. All of us need. I have a therapist. I have a therapist. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that because some folks will say, oh, why do therapists have that? Because again, having someone to talk to and be our highest and best self is helpful. And you want a therapist that is healthy. So that's that's not a, a bad thing. And before we delve into the psyches of others, it's important that we we handle our own. So, you know, we just we've talked about that before in decreasing stigma. So that's, you know, a normal function as as well. So we've had a remarkably enlightening dialogue with Dr. Robert McClish, and we certainly thank you for joining us on New Horizon Mind and Body Connection. If people want to reach out, how can they contact you? There are, there are a few ways. Um, you can go on my Facebook page, which is Rob McClish, or you can also go on the Washington Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church website. Or our Facebook page, Washington Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church, or for my um, private practice and my my, my um, ministry, personal ministry, is Courageous Living Ministries, um, which is on Facebook as well. And so um, you can connect with me there, and we can uh, make it happen. Wonderful. So once again, thank you to Dr. McClish for appearing on New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection on Intentional Talk Radio Network. Our next show will be February 27th. Thank you to our listeners uh, around the globe. Those who weren't able to listen live today, please share with family and friends. This podcast will be available next week on all of the major podcast uh, platforms. So be safe and be well until... Uh, we uh, meet again and stay tuned for our next show everyday uh, lessons. Thank you so much. All right, thank you.